If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. It's very much our idea of people like me to get schemes where nobody realised it was a council estate or anything else. It's just people where people live and not an obvious, obviously different thing. That was Peter Deakins talking about the creation of social housing in post-war London. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. It was a year ago this week that a terrible fire broke out in Grenfell Tower, North Kensington, leading to the deaths of 72 people, and bringing to the fore vital questions about the nature of social housing in Britain. The historical context of the blaze is being explored in a BBC Two documentary entitled Before Grenfell, A Hidden History, which airs this Wednesday, 
the 13th of June at 9pm. One of the contributors to the programme is the architect Peter Deakins, who, back in the 1960s, was one of the original designers of the Lancaster West Estate, which would come to include Grenfell Tower. I visited Peter in his London home a few days ago to talk about his initial vision for the estate, his reactions to the fire and his thoughts about the changing nature of social housing over the past half century. So could I ask you, first of all, Peter, what exactly your role was in Grenfell Tower? Grenfell Tower, I suppose, was my fault in many ways because I, purely by chance, I was involved. I, I did the original plan for the whole area when the practice was commissioned to prepare a planning scheme for 24 acres or whatever it is of North Kensington. And with all of the experience of uh, low-cost housing that I'd had, I realised that one couldn't get access to multi-layer development of any scheme and get a lift uh, unless there was at least one tower where we could get subsidies for putting lifts in. Uh, So that was put in the scheme to relate to some of the London County Council towers which were nearby but it provided lifts to get to the upper levels um, since all the rest of the flats had just walk up without any lifts at all. Grenfell Tower and the wider development, they weren't happening in isolation, were they? There was a, a, this was part of a general um, building programme that was going on throughout the country at the time, oh, is yes, that right? Yes, yes, very much. All local authorities had a quota to fill of providing social housing. Um, of some sort called council housing, for want of a better phrase. Um, And this was part of Kensington's quota. It was just Kensington then because it was before it merged with Chelsea. So this development that that you're working on, I mean, obviously it was a building programme. Am I right? There was also a kind of social idea underpinning it as well. It wasn't just about building, it was also about creating... A different kind of community. Yeah, well, the, the whole basis was to provide low-cost housing for poor people, but in the way it was hoped it would work out, it was going to be much more than that by making something that would be accessible and usable by people outside the area as well, so that the whole thing would merge much more and be part of the whole neighbourhood just as if it had been there for 100 years or so, you know, and not building a new council estate uh, in a little defined area that was on its own patch and not really accessible to other people. And purely by chance it was because of the different levels in land between 
Ladbroke Grove Station and Latimer Road Station. There was 18-foot difference, and it was clear to me that what was the ground level at one end would be 18 feet in here at the other end, so you could go right over the railway. And the hope, my original hope was that it would give the possibility of upgrading Latimer Road Station uh, so that it'd be naturally uh, an access point for anybody to go to a new shopping centre offices and a swimming pool uh, to replace the old swimming pool that was there and to form very naturally as part of the whole fabric of the area. What kind of an area was what, this part of what is now North Kensington at the time that you started working on this development? Yeah, it was a very run-down and neglected area. A lot of private landlords who had no... Um, no stimulus to repair or replace the houses at all uh, because um, they weren't allowed to charge enough rent to, to cover the expense of upgrading it anyway and it was much easier just to let it lie around in a derelict condition to let to poor people and there was a lot of overcrowding as well. So the general fabric of the building was pretty poor. Much of it had been condemned by the public health officer as being below standard, you know, so it was uh, pretty well condemned and would have been taken down anyway, whatever scheme we'd done. Why was it in the end that not every aspect of your initial plan was realised in, in the subsequent development? Um, Barbican had a very difficult passage um, to get built and there were great arguments in the city um, and a lot of people wanted it all to be offices and other people thought that you should bring people back to live in the city and that's the group who won but it was a long struggle and clear, I suppose in retrospect I can see that it could have been a struggle like that in North Kensington at the time, but people find change very difficult. And firstly, London Transport immediately decided that the idea of building over the railway line, instead of seeing it as an opportunity of upgrading the station and linking it to a new centre of offices and shopping, very much like White City has become subsequently, or to link to the swimming pool, which is, there is a new swimming pool there, so all the things were built, but not in the way that they're intended, because I think people couldn't see the point, really. And London Transport wanted to charge us on our clients overflying rights you know, so they'd get some rental for us to build across the lines rather than seeing it as an opportunity to upgrade the station. Um, and beyond that, the borough engineer uh, couldn't see the point of incorporating all the roads in the scheme, although this is something I very much wanted to do to diminish the 
impact of traffic and cars going through anywhere and, you know, to absorb parking in a, in a, in a way that was easily, easy to live with and easy to build, to a degree anyway. Um, but again, the borough engineer couldn't see this at all and insisted that the whole site revert to a, a piece of land with a red line around it saying this is a council estate, you know, so the whole basis of my ideas went really. So I no longer stayed with the scheme for better or worse. But despite that, the subsequent development, which which included Grenfell Tower, was that still a significant step up on the accommodation that people who'd been living there would have had? Oh, yeah, I think so, because, um, in fact, there were bigger, greater standards in the accommodation, and my previous one-time boss at, when I was working on Barbican, Joe Chamberlain had been on the Parker Morris Committee and upgraded all the sizes of the flats. And so they're reasonably generous flats and much better than had been built elsewhere. And uh, yes, yeah, so it was an upgrading of standards and everybody had their own bathroom and their own kitchen, which previously people probably shared a you know, a, a, a gas ring on a on a landing or something, and it shared the bathroom and the loo, which was like the whole of the West End of London at one time, probably well the whole of central London, really. Um, so standards were much higher, and the flats were much bigger. And council estates or um, social housing estates, such as one Grenfell Tower was on, they they were created with a lot of optimism and ideas of progress, but Yes. So how did they eventually get this reputation? I don't know if you think it's fair or not, as being quite negative places, places people may not have wanted to live. Well, yeah, I think maintenance is always one of the things, you know, that everybody assumes as soon as you've got a new building, nothing needs to be done to it for the next 100 years, and life's not like that. As soon as you build something new and the rain gets at it, it starts weathering very sometimes quickly and sometimes very slowly and hopefully you're doing something that's going to happen very slowly so there's maintenance um and there are lots of opinions about people in local authorities for managing management purposes putting difficult tenants all together so that they're easier to manage um but very often with disastrous results because it was very much our idea, people like me, to get schemes where nobody realised it was a council estate or anything else. It's just people where people live and not an obvious, obviously different thing. Um, and, yeah, I think a lot of... People resent paying taxes to give accommodation to people who don't deserve it, you might say, you know. Yeah, there are so many social attitudes about the whole thing and, um, I say, a resentment of taxes and, and carrying responsibility, but 
you know, when only has to think 50% of the population is below average, isn't it, really? You know, and you can't do anything about that, and it's not their fault, and it's not anybody's brilliance if they're not like that. It's just chance. Um, so everybody has a responsibility, I think. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of schemes we did were very much on Scandinavian ideas, really. Um, and uh, perhaps many of the Scandinavian social attitudes were perhaps a bit more palatable to many people than lots of attitudes that are not quite so kind, maybe, for want of a better word. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So do you feel that the spirit that motivated these new developments and motivated people like you, did that change? Did that dissipate in subsequent decades? Um, there were two or three things involved in that, but um, with social housing and government schemes anyway, and with a lot of the clients were very different, you know, and different authorities, and some were, we thought, much more enlightened than others, and some boroughs provided very good schemes and very thoughtful and very concerned. Um, and it's easier to work for people like that 
for architects like me because you've got a client who's sympathetic to what you're trying to do anyway, uh, whereas the opposite, uh, I'm not against developers. My father was one, you know, in fact, so I come from the building background very much anyway. Um, but it is not their job to worry about the how the people they're catering for sit in, fit into any social fabric, really. It's just not their problem, and they shouldn't be expected to be able to solve these things, really. And I do know of some very sad situations around, or very difficult situations around, where um, people have been landed into all sorts of you know, residents of various buildings around have been landed in all sorts of difficult situations because of changing attitudes and changing clients uh, for whatever reason, mainly political, of course, and because of what people are trying to do, not because they're nasty people or anything like that, but they've got different objectives and attitudes. And, yeah, as much much easier for people like me to work for um, doing that sort of scheme who who had people on the client body who were sympathetic as well to the sort of things we were trying to do. Um, and that's largely disappeared, I'm afraid. Taking the story up to the present, what were your reactions when you first heard the news about this terrible fire that happened at Grenfell? Um, one of my sons sent me a text with a photograph of the whole thing and a, a comments about, you know, the failures of postmodern buildings and things like that. And he had no idea it was anything to do with me. And I looked at it and I thought, my God, you know, it's Lancaster Road. Um, it was utter horror, you know. And of course, it should never have been like that, really. I mean, it's become more clear from what everybody's saying that the cladding was an utter disaster. Um, oddly enough, I had been asked by someone, Constantine Gross, who had been employed by the group who were doing the upgrading as a uh, social, um, can't think of a phrase, but anyway, he was taking films of the whole area and talking to the residents about the whole upgrade. So I went around with him the tower just before it was re-let, after it had been done up two years ago, three years ago, whatever, three years, I suppose. Um, and I had no idea, you know. I just couldn't imagine that such a thing could be possible, that it, that could be allowed to happen, because in days when we were first working on it, architects took a great deal of responsibility and were in charge of the whole thing, and they instructed everybody else what to do and of course, the responsibility fell on our head totally if it 
went wrong. So it's a great stimulus to try and make sure it doesn't. Although, you know, buildings are tricky and accidents happen and things can go wrong. Um, but nothing like this. And the standards were so much higher at the time. You know, and there's been an argument uh, recently about half-hour fire doors and they weren't specified high enough and only last lasted for a quarter of an hour. Well, when we designed things, they were supposed to be an hour fire door and half-hour fire doors were for bedrooms inside and bedrooms were supposed to be near to the entrance to the flat so you could get out. You know, you'd be protected in the bedroom or you could get out quite quickly, you know, out of the entrance door because the most likely place for a fire is, of course, the kitchen, you know. Um, so standards, yeah, are totally different and there seems to have been a, a great lessening of the way everything's done. So do you, do you think that one of the lessons from the Grenfell Tower fire is that building regulations need to be strengthened? Um, I'm a great believer in the cock-up theory of history, really, that anything can go wrong at will, particularly on the building site, I'm sure of that. But, um, yes, I think things have got too lax, really, and it's too casual and lower standards altogether and you know we have quantity surveyors always told us that the higher the ceilings or the bigger the floor plan the more money it costs because they would do it on a square footage basis or a cubic footage basis so of course it would according to those figures um so there's always that pressure to make things smaller and standards, those sort of space standards were taken away some years ago. And I think the uh, GLA has brought back some standards which are back to Parker Morris, which is what my old Barbican boss helped to set up 60 years ago, you know, so... Um, in some ways, it's getting back to better standards, but not in terms of building. You know, whether builders should be in charge of the whole building process instead of architects, as it used to be, um, I don't know. It's very difficult. A lot of architects got sued by clients for the smallest things, so a client could end up getting their fees to the architect paid for them out of damages, you know, in the insurance company, which is pretty outrageous, really. That's why so many architects are limited liability companies these days. I'm not, but, um, you know, lucky touch wood, don't do so much these days anyway. Do you think that, on a broader level, that social housing nowadays and housing in general could we look back to the 70s, say, in the 60s, as to learn some lessons about the future of social housing and how we can improve it? Um, well, the great thing about those times, um, and I was on the board of a very big housing association for about 14 years, South London Family Housing Association, was set up 
um, part of shelter and so on to, as its name implies, to deliberately provide housing for families because most builders provide housing, you know, one and two bedroom flats because they're easiest to sell or to let. And families find it very difficult on the basis that a bigger flat costs more as the quantity surveyor says, to pay more for the bigger flat, you know. So it is very difficult. And I think what was interesting to me about the 50s, 60s and 70s, um, although I suppose in the 70s in the background there were economic problems in the whole country which were beginning to intrude on the whole thing, but for us, you know, as professionals working in it, it's a great time. They were great times because everything was looking into new ways of doing things and very adventurous and, yeah, really great times to work, you know, and if you're at all interested in inventing things and doing things better, yeah, wonderful. You know, I really enjoyed doing all of these things, great times. And yeah, maybe they've gone. And to what extent do you feel that housing and the built environment can be a force for general societal progress? Um, I'm an architect, so I think what I and my profession does is very important. And I'm not sure how true that is. And a lot of people are not aware at all of what's around them, although... I like to think that without people realising it, the quality of their environment does matter a lot. I love living by Battersea Park and having nice trees that have just gone over blossoming a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's wonderful here. And I've not wanted to move really over 50 years being here and not felt, you know, it's great. Um, So, yeah, I think it does matter. And for me, as an architect, I think all architects ought to push for those sorts of standards for anything they're doing for anybody. Um, Some do and some don't. That was Peter Deakins. And as I mentioned earlier, Before Grenville, A Hidden History, airs this Wednesday, the 13th of June, at 9pm on BBC Two and it will be available on BBC iPlayer afterwards. And that's about it for today's episode, but we'll be back on Thursday when we're going to be talking about the home front in the First World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.